understand that it's important to eat healthy and clean. It's important to be able to feed your children good, clean and fair food. Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tahir. Girdelecter. Chakula Ijaya. Food. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Spin Podcast. I'm Valentina Gritti, the podcast host, and I'm the Global Community and Project Manager of the Slow Food Youth Network. In the episodes of the previous month, we decided to learn more about the Highlands ecosystem, and in particular about coffee and the Highlands biodiversity. This month instead, we want to take you to the arid lands. And in particular, we want to talk about some regenerative preservation practices carried out by our super cool guests in different parts of the world. From New Mexico to Egypt, from Australia to Colorado and Spain, we will find out a lot about soil and food preservation practices. Yes, we will talk about permaculture and about fermentation, bacteria in the soil and bacteria in food. Also this time we have a very special host who has carried out all the interviews and worked on the whole concept. I'm talking about Sara El Sayed. Sara is a PhD candidate in food system sustainability, focusing on regenerative food practices in arid regions. She's also a researcher in biomimicry. For those who don't know it, like me before meeting Sara, biomimicry is the design of new models, things, structures by taking nature as an example. Sara is co-founder of Nawaya, a social enterprise working as a catalyst to transition small-scale farmer communities in Egypt into more sustainable ones through education and research. She's also co-founder of Dayama, a limited liability company responsible for outdoor environmental education, teaching young adults about biomimicry and local Egyptian communities. She sat on the Slow Food International Board representing North Africa and currently is a board member for Slow Food Phoenix. A special thanks also to the students that supported Sarah's work, Anna Elovitz, Jordan Sine, Catherine Blessington and Madison Harris. We invite you to travel with us through the complexity and interconnectedness of food and explore the stories and practices of traditional and small-scale producers who innovate through intergenerational knowledge. We challenge you to think about the roots of our food and make conscious decisions about what is on our plate and how it got there. I am your host, Sarah El Sayed, and to better understand these topics, I have invited several global guests from the Southwest USA to North Africa to Australia, who delve into techniques from arid regions of how to preserve food. Arid regions are characterized by severe lack of water, and usually it is difficult to grow in their soils due to lack of fertility. However, Traditional communities across the globe have managed to find ways not only to grow lush gardens, but also find strategies of preservation and storage to maintain their produce, even in times of drought. Roxanne reconnects to her indigenous seed-saving roots. Manar solar dries delicious fruits and vegetables. And Salah and Mara explore the biodiverse world of fermentation. I have invited them to introduce themselves and their favorite non-human companions. Our first guest is able to weave her artistic talent farming skills, and indigeneity to create a truly regenerative ecosystem. I am Roxanne Swensel from Santa Clara Pueblo, located in northern New Mexico. 
And I live here on the reservation, working in keeping traditions alive that were maintaining us for thousands of years. I am also an artist, and I started a nonprofit in 1989 called Flowering Tree Permaculture Institute, which focuses on the sustainability of our tribal ways of life. And your non-human companion? I would have to say the trees in my yard. <laughs> I grew them from seed, and I now, after 35 years, they have turned into a forest that surround my house. I can always see them at all times of the day, and I'll find myself mesmerized by watching them. And I realized the other day that I've been watching them since they came out of the ground, and now they are taller than my house. Next is Manar Mabit, who produces solar-dried fruits and vegetables in the outskirts of Cairo, Egypt. When I retired from uh, uh, public work, you know, working at the American University in Cairo, my grandchildren uh, started to ask me for junk food to eat. And I was adamant about not having them eat any of the junk food that they find in the stores or in the shops. So we decided to experiment together, my two uh, oldest grandsons, and we started uh, drying apples at home in our Uh, oven. And it was a fantastic experience. They loved it. They loved the whole process and they loved eating the fresh, uh, the dried apples. And they took them to lunch with them at school and the kids, uh, their friends started to eat them. And I thought, well, maybe there's a market here. Maybe we can do something instead of importing everything from abroad. Maybe we can dry our own fruits here. You know, just a family thing. I was doing it for the children of the family, my grandchildren. And we were doing it together. They would come to the farm with me and on their weekends, and we would uh, peel and cut and uh, uh, set up the dryer. And they all loved it, and I loved it. And then I took it a little bit more seriously. Salah Hamed is a farmer, a teacher, a food scientist, originally from Jordan, who now lives in Sydney, Australia. I'm a permaculture and regenerative agriculture consultant and teacher. I've worked on projects and taught courses in around 20 countries between Europe, Asia and Pacific. And your favorite non-human companion? Cows are definitely my favorite animals. <laughs> They've lived with us for more than 8,000 years. And I worked a lot with cows. I milked cows. I assisted cows in giving birth. You know, they're, they're extremely smart social animals, but they get so much bad rep these days. It's all because of us. It's the way we house them in concentrated feedlots. We feed them grain, which is grown in a highly unsustainable manner and and all of that so that we consume them in a very unnatural way. There's no indigenous culture in the world that consumes meat or dairy the way we in the Western culture consume it. They also sequester more carbon than what they produce. They emit carbon in the air in the form of methane through burps and passing gas, but they sequester more carbon if they are grazed on perennial grasses and in a rotational manner. They evolve doing that in nature before domestication. Finally, we have Chef Mara King, who is currently living in Boulder, Colorado. I am a self-described food nerd. I like anything to do with food. I grew up in a very foodie family in Hong Kong. My grandfather, he founded a noodle company and had a restaurant attached to the noodle company. And with nine children, he created a whole brood of people who are wild about everything to do with food. For me to be raised in that space was really wonderful. She then told us about the organism she is currently most fascinated with. This was my first year keeping bees, and it was quite an adventure. You start with a packet of 1,000 bees, and I think towards the end, we had maybe 30,000 bees. And then we were the subject of a bear attack. And then I saw my bees struggle and dwindle, and during the last cold snap, they died. 
and it's kind of a sad story, but it's really quite an amazing experience. And then on Sunday with my family, we processed all the honey from the bees and it was a very good connection to them now. And I'm excited to work with another hive next spring. We start the episode understanding the complex relations of food by understanding the concept of a regenerative food system. Later, our guests give us insights on how they in turn have used these different preservation techniques to ensure that this bounty can be used for the longest and also sometimes enhancing its flavor. They show us how learning from traditional practices and looking at nature strategies can create bounty even in regions that are considered arid. We asked our guests... What does regeneration mean to them? Mm. That is another word for remembering our relationship to our home, the earth, and the life that is around in it. We couldn't be alive without all of the other things that are alive on it. And so on my property, on this dry, barren ground, the first thing we did was we realized if we were going to have a plant growing in this harsh area, what does a plant need? I always tell people, ask yourself that question. If you were a little baby seed, would you want to grow out in the middle of a driveway with the sun beating down and the water rushes by but doesn't stay by you or there's no cover to keep you warm at night? All those things are the same for all life. They want to have a nurturing environment. So in order to grow fruit tree, you might dig a nice basin around the tree so that the water can hold near it. You may want to plant it someplace where it's protected from the wind or get somewhere it gets enough sunlight and has shade at the right time of day. All those things you think about and you start to create a pocket of life. And you can grow that from one little area into a, a very large area. So what we did was we made many little microclimates in our yard. We might bring in a couple big rocks and place them. So if it does rain, the water runs off and goes underneath the rock, soaking in the ground and doesn't get evaporated. And then maybe you plant your tree on the north side of that rock where it might get more moisture, but the rock can help keep it warm at night because it's soaked in the sun's heat in the day. And you start making every little spot richer and richer until you hopefully fill the world up with life. <laughs> Designing systems where the food produced is the byproduct of the regeneration process of the ecosystem is in a nutshell how I look at regenerative food systems and water being gathered and soaked in the ground, soil fertility being built through partnering with natural systems, waste being recycled and put back in the system. They are all techniques that can be adapted to enhance the ecosystem that is growing the food, which means the grower hands over the land to the next generation, but the land would be in a better condition than when he or she started the work. The act of growing food now is a leading cause of the problems facing us. Climate chaos and habitat loss and topsoil loss and rivers and oceans and aquifers polluted. And currently, farmers around the world, a lot of them don't want their kids to take over <laughs> because they can see the, the dead end. While now, they have to probably take a loan to buy the seeds every year. And when the seed is planted, it will not grow unless it's pumped with fertilizers at very specific dosages. And at the end, they're probably not making enough profit because some big supermarket is controlling the price. And that's where regenerative food systems can have an impact. Building the ecosystem again will benefit the farmer. And I think the work we do in regenerative farming and permaculture is, is very optimistic. It's a very positive action. We think it will take humanity in the right direction.
Roxanne invites us to be in awe of nature and to learn from her and be curious like a child and also to pass this wisdom on to our children through the connections that we have with our seeds. Roxanne's farm is in New Mexico and is in a very arid region. We are in the high desert, so not only are we a very dry climate, we're below five inches a year, and uh, but we're also high in climate. The altitude is about 7,000 feet, and we have a very short growing season. So not only are we hot and dry, <laughs> but we're also cold and short-seasoned. So it's actually a very difficult environment to establish a oasis. <laughs> so our place is pretty cool. If you walk into it from the outside world in the summer, it's literally 15 degrees cooler. And because of the way it soaks in the heat and stabilizes the temperature because of its holding of water, it stabilizes the temperature year round. Where do you draw your inspiration from? Hmm. What inspires me to do the permaculture stuff is the joy in watching nature and how it works and the life that is in it from as small down as the microorganisms in the soil to plants and insects and birds and everything that creates life. And to me, it's trying to understand how nature works and how I can be of service to it. Because I've noticed since I was a little girl that I love to grow things. And I remember being young when our fruit trees had a good year and the branches were hanging really low to the ground with apples and peaches. And I remember being so excited that they did that. And then wanting to um, help my dad in the garden. And I wanted to be the one that watered them because I could be out there with them. So the whole study of how to put together systems that imitate nature in the most abundant place of itself made me always feel closer to nature. And the closer I am to nature, the more I feel like I belong here and it feeds my soul in a very deep way. At the core of Roxanne's work is the importance that knowledge needs to be passed across generations. And she models this with her children and grandchildren. I'm a grandma of four beautiful grandchildren that I had the luxury of homeschooling for about three years. And uh, one of the things we'd do is we'd quickly do our paperwork at the kitchen table, and then we'd go outside. And outside would always be an adventure. And some days, you know, we would finish right before lunch, and I would hand them each a plate, and I'd say, go find your food. And they'd have to go outside, and we'd study about which plants were edible, which things they could find that might be good for eating for lunch. <laughs> and they'd come back all excited to tell me what they found. And I just love that I created a world that my grandchildren now can learn from and start to feel like they are capable of possibly living within the natural environment and not just be dependent on industrial made foods and packaged goods that you have to, you know, become uh, money-minded to, to play the game. In this alternative world, it's a reciprocal relationship where if we gave it love, little water, help it along, it gives us so much. It keeps us alive and it teaches us about our connection to the earth and ourselves. And that makes me super happy. This connection with her grandchildren translates into her deep connection with seed saving and preserving these traditions. What made you start saving seeds? We began a seed bank and the seed bank was very clearly defined as seeds of our ancestors because I was aware that farming was slowly disappearing in our community at the time and the seed were going to disappear also. And so I started a seed bank here in the tribe and have been collecting and growing out 
these traditional seeds for over 30 years, hopefully continuing to the next generations. It's amazing that we still have what we have. So, so we have our original plants that adapted through time to this climate and to the conditions here. But also, they have a relationship to us as a culture and they need to stay with us in order to help us continue our culture also. And what does seed saving actually entail? If you've saved seeds, you know that you have to be careful not to cross them so that they stay sort of purely that particular species of plant. For instance, corn crosses very easily, so I can only grow one kind of corn in a field at a time. And then if I grow a good crop, we could save some for eating, but a good jar of it goes back into the seed bank to renew that seed. If it just sits on the shelf and doesn't get planted out, it will slowly die. And so it's really important to maintain the seed bank by growing the crops out. And that continues also keeping the relationship between these crops and the people ongoing. So we have a lot of corn, we have many species of beans and squash and melons and even some things that are more wild-like, what we call the wild spinach here. I have things that are not specifically from our culture but are from this continent, some different kinds of sunchokes and asparagus and tomatoes and chilies and the main focus has been on our traditional crops. To come full circle, she also gets her inspiration from her ancestors and her ancestral sites. I've done a lot of study on traditional farming methods, and I also grew up going to our ancestral sites, the ruined sites of the Pueblo people here. And the archaeologists um, were studying the agricultural fields of our ancestors. And it's pretty fascinating because even though we don't necessarily grow the crops in the same way, it's possible we could again, especially if things get more difficult. It may be really important to know these different methods of growing in this climate. Um, And they were growing crops far from water sources, but we're figuring out ways of collecting the little bit of rainfall that was coming down into these growing beds through the use of water catchments and rock mulch. So it's pretty fascinating. So I do work with some of those traditional gardening ways. Another traditional technique is described by Menar, whose solar drying process is rooted in ancient tradition, but is mixed in with innovative technology. Egyptians have always dried things, always. I think from ancient times, from the times of the pharaohs, we used to dry uh, vegetables and fruits and figs. And uh, uh, and if you go to the countryside in Egypt, you will always see uh, in season uh, the mallow, the molochea being dried on the on the sand in the in the desert or the parsley or uh, the okra. I remember as a child threading okra uh, into a sort of a long string and hanging it to dry. So we've always used drying as a method of uh, preservation in Egypt. Um, what, what I did is I learned the technique to use this ancient method and adapt to it the, the solar panel to accelerate the drying process. But still the same principle is I don't use electricity per se. I don't use, I'm not hooked up to the grid or anything. Uh, the solar panel produces the electricity that turns the fans that push the hot air, which is, uh, which is produced in the black part of the tunnel and it pushes the hot air over the food. Uh, we are very, um, conscious of the environment. We produce no sound. We produce no smell because we don't burn diesel or anything like that. It's just the sun and us. Tell us what your favorite products are. I like all of our products Uh, (laughs) and I'm being very, very partisan about it, but I do have favorite ones. My favorite ones are the mangoes 
and the strawberries. In the um, vegetable division, uh, our, our soup mix, you know, our vegetable mix is something I use in everything, totally everything. I don't choose uh, the cubes anymore. I flavor everything with it. I even make a Spanish omelet with the dried fruit, the dried vegetables. I uh, flavor rice with it. I flavor pasta with it. Uh, I don't even need to make sauce anymore because all I need to do is uh, when the pasta is cooked, I keep a little bit of the water, the cooking water at the bottom, and I add to it any of the dried uh, vegetables that I have, whether it's carrots or just onions or garlic and tomatoes, even tomato powder. Mix all that and it cooks in that little bit of water and it's just delicious. So I've made my life easy and one of my goals is to make the life of women who work easier because everything is, is dried and ready for them. All they have to do is either uh, use it as is or maybe uh, rehydrate it a little bit and use it in a conventional way. Hmm. Can you tell us about the mangoes in Egypt and how their season has been extended using your drying techniques? Egyptian mangoes are delicious and drying them makes them last much longer. The season, uh, the mango season is about three to four months in Egypt, depending on the variety. Now you can have mango all year round. And you can use the dried mango in your yogurt instead of buying a flavored yogurt, which has probably a lot of sugar in it. We have many, many varieties of mangoes in Egypt. I think we have maybe 70 varieties or something like that. I use basically three varieties that have become indigenous to Egypt. And the reason is because the uh, Egyptian local mangoes turn brown a lot quicker than the other newer varieties that have been brought in from South Africa. So I use the Keet and I use the Naomi, which are fairly new mangoes to Egypt. But when they dry, they can last a whole year without changing their color or their flavor for that matter. Our local mangoes, which are the Hindi, for instance, they are lovely. They are wonderful when they're dried, but their color lasts only three months, four months at the most, and then they start turning brown. And of course, people buy with their eyes before they buy the product itself. So we, we do dry them, but we dry them for very quick sales. Menar's farm is located in the outskirts of Giza, where she has taken this German solar technology, which she learned about in a workshop in Kerala, India, and modified it. So how did you make it adapt to your local context then? Uh, the tunnel is a, basically is a, a long table, very, very long table divided into three parts. The first part is the solar panel. The second part is the um, collector where the hot air is collected and it's painted black. And then you have the dryer part. The dryer part at the very end of the tunnel is open to the outside. Very early on, we realized that uh, we had visitors at night that came in through that open end. It was the only part that was open. So I decided to, to fit in a, a, a frame with a, a mesh to prevent anything from going in there. And I sent it to the company. The company that I bought it from is in Germany. So it's German technology taught in India and bought by me in Egypt. And I sent it to them and I said, you know, this is, uh, this is not good for countries or for areas where we have uh, rodents that uh, walk around at night and can just jump into the tunnel. And they like the idea very much. Manar's work is not only rooted in Egyptian tradition, but also in her passion for positively impacting the lives of women and children. Uh, Egyptians are used to drying, although all the drying processes now are um, declining. A lot of people prefer to use frozen foods. Uh, for me, of course, this is, uh, this is totally unacceptable. I don't use frozen foods at all. I prefer to use dried foods and just rehydrate them if I need to. So I was constantly in the process of, of teaching these women why frozen food is not the best method for preserving and why drying is much better and about also the expense because for freezing you need a freezer and you need electricity and sometimes electricity here is uh, cut quite often. By teaching these women the hygiene about drying food and about preserving food and keeping it for a year or more than a year sometimes is, um, I think, uh, very important. How did it all start and where does the name Minis come from? Our setup is still a family setup. You know, the girls that work for me, uh, I've either raised them in the, at the farm or I've known their mothers and fathers and, you know, it's just, it's a different thing. 
My grandson, the very first grandson, is the one who really helped me with everything. In fact, he's the one who chose the name. I gave him a list of Arabic names, you know, fun names in Arabic. And they said, he looked at me and he said, no, 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 that's not the right name. We're going to call it Minis because number one, you work with many things. And number two, I call you Mini. So it's going to be Minis. And of course, the game was, it was Minis. But then it became a serious thing. It's a company now. And he's been my support in uh, the computer part. And my son has been the support in the financial side. I mean, it's been a family kind of thing, but they're involved but removed. So I don't know what's going to happen. If my grandson decides to take it on, it would be lovely. A quick reminder that you can support the Sfin podcast and have access to extra material by becoming a Slow Food Youth Network patron on patreon.com slash join slash Slow Food Youth Network. From one form of preservation, drying, to another, Salah talks to us about what preservation and specifically fermentation means to him and his work. Food preservation is to do with storing what surplus you've grown. That's why we preserve the food, so that we consume it when there's not much growing, out of season. I always have some sort of yeast or bacteria or mold growing somewhere in my kitchen. It's like having a pet, which you need to feed and put in bed, but they're also really good for you. So the probiotics and the enzymes that we get from the ferments improve our digestion, leading to better nutrition because the body is populated with these beneficial microorganisms. That would mean we are more resistant to disease-causing microorganisms, which is very similar to the soil, because when we look at soil that is healthy, aerobic, full of worms and fungi and good bacteria, the plants will thrive and they will not get as many diseases compared to soil, which has been sprayed with biocides and all the life is killed. And That's what happens to our bodies when we take a lot of antibiotics. And you're advised to take ferments after a dose of antibiotics to repopulate your body with these good bacteria. Yeah, fermentation is definitely my go-to preservation method in the kitchen. So where did you learn about it? When I was a kid, my grandma always had something fermenting in the kitchen and it always smelled yeasty. <laughs> I've always been you know, interested in that sort of thing and experimented a lot. And during my time... Um, in Zaytuna Farm, managing the Permaculture Research Institute. Zaytuna is a permaculture research institute in Australia and is one of the leaders in research and innovation in food production and farm strategies for arid regions. We had a lot of surplus coming from the gardens, from the animals. So I experimented a lot and learned a lot there, doing yogurts and cheese and all types of vegetable ferments. Tell us about the many ferments that you and your partner have going on in your home right now in Sydney. The sourdough going on. Historically, all cultures used some sort of a yeast or a mold to ferment their grain. Before the use of commercial yeast, we depended on these cultures to ferment our grains. And it has health benefits in terms of lowering the, the phytates, which leads to better absorption of the minerals that are in the bread. But they also reduce the gluten a little bit. Um, the community of yeasts that you add to the dough when you're raising the dough give different flavors compared to your commercial yeast. The sourdough has a diversity of yeasts and molds are consuming different elements and turning that into different flavors in the bread. And that's why it tastes different than normal bread. <laughs> But the longer you let that fermentation happen, the more sour the bread would be. So the other day I had actually one sourdough left all night and then all day. And I ended up with bread that is that's actually sour. The flavor was a lot more intense. And not a lot of people like that sort of. It's sour and sweet. There's also sugars. But we enjoy that because it just goes well with what we eat the bread with. It wouldn't go well with jam and peanut butter. But it would go well with ebony <laughs> or with za'atar, you know. So sourdough. Any other ferments? We enjoy kimchi. It's our favorite way to consume cabbage. It's a Korean recipe which uses lactic acid bacteria to break down the cabbage. I always have a bit of it on the side. I think it helps me digest heavy meals. <laughs> I love dairy fermentation. I do yoga at home. And after you make yogurt, you can make labanay out of yogurt. So by adding a bit of salt and drain the water, 
in a cheesecloth and you end up with Lebanese, which is the Eastern cheese. And then you can flavor that with herbs. But also that water you drained off, you can soak seeds and give your chickens seeds soaked in yogurt, higher in protein. Another thing you can do with yogurt, which is common in, in dry lands of the Middle East, is turning the yogurt into what we call jameed. So they're salted, sun-dried bowls of yogurt. And it's the best way to preserve the surplus of the milk that's produced in spring. Two types of uh, food processing going on there. We ferment lemons. We half them and then we salt them and put a bit of water and press them and let them ferment for three to four weeks. They're actually nice. I mean, in the curry gives that sourness. Kefir in milk and kefir in water, different granules. Kefir granules are from Turkey and they ferment milk into a slightly yeasty uh, drinking milk and you can flavor it with fruits. It's a nice refreshment. We don't buy refreshments from supermarkets. So I do ginger ale. We also do kombucha. The one we're doing now is with black tea and sugar, iced sweet tea, you ferment it with the scoby, which is a community of yeasts and bacteria, that pancake-looking thing, and put it in the, in the iced tea, and it ferments the sugar into acids. And then you can do a second fermentation where you add the fruits, not only iced tea, but a berry iced tea. That's all the ferments that are going on now. Wow, that sounds incredibly delicious. And finally, we talked to Chef Mara, who recounts her relationship to fermentation. My fermentation practice is very much a practice. So I pick up and drop different things as I learn more about them. So I feel like when you're a fermenter, you have to have a conversation with the food because it's not just a one-way ticket. I feel like in order to be a good fermenter, you need to ferment things more than one time. And so in my own practice as a fermenter, I move from one kind of fermentation to another. And as I go through these different ferments, I'm always learning more. So what's your favorite fermented product? I definitely have enjoyed making koji and tempeh is one thing that is seductive because it just has such an amazing texture and aroma. And I feel like the pillowy mold that grows and it's so fragrant, it really draws you in. Mara then told us that she wants this passion to translate to others. Like in my youth, I was driven by learning to gain knowledge and to gain skill. And I feel more so now driven by a sense of understanding what good food is and finding ways to find some kind of food justice in the world around me. How can I make good food? How can I share knowledge and make fermentation and other techniques? How can I make that accessible as well? In my community, uh, through the restaurant that I work for, which is called Fresh Times Eatery in Boulder, Colorado, we have a small marketplace and I have started a fermentation program here And I'm working on rotating different kinds of ferments that I can directly offer to people in my community. Through her work, Mara has had the opportunity to travel with fermentation experts under cats across Southeast Asia. So tell us what was maybe one of your favorite moments traveling with Sander. While we were in the village in Qinfen, where the village sort of really took us in and we were pulled from one house to the next, you know, another granny would come over and say, come, come, come. And she'd show us what project she had going on in her house. And another one of the grannies was like, come, come, come. I want to show you what's going on. But Sander, of course, he's always game for everything. And so he went along and the granny was showing him their village's version of natto. Natto is a fermented soybean. It's a tradition in Japan. And a lot of people find it to be a very advanced food. It's very slimy and it's a little bit stinky. And when you stir it up, it sort of has a mucilaginous texture. I think it's really delicious. It's considered a superfood. It's like one of the highest vitamin K foods that you can find. William Shirtliff is like one of the leading experts on uh, tempeh and other sort of Asian fermented foods and has studied natto and written books about natto. 
And he had mentioned in his books that natto does not exist in China. And so when Sandor discovered this natto, he just like lit up like a lamp. And, you know, he went over and helped the granny with her natto production. And in this particular village, they take the natto that has been cooked, steamed, and then fermented. They pound it with a paddle until it is a fine, gooey mush. And then they dehydrate it and mix it with spices and form it into little cookies. And Sandor also was really surprised when he saw a little kid grabbing a cookie the same way a kid would steal a chocolate chip cookie. Mischievous look on his face. He (laughs) was amazed that the kid was like sneaking natto cookies. So why do you think people are so scared of fermentation? Because we don't understand these processes anymore. If we lived these processes, if we understood these processes, we wouldn't have fear around them. But we've given up a lot of food processing to larger powers other than ourselves. As human beings, we're not food processors anymore. We're food consumers. So it's not surprising that there is fear around being a consumer. This is something that you have to do with your hands because food is an embodied language. Our guests have helped us understand the complex relations that different people have had to their land across generations and how to preserve foods and traditions across time. They delve deep into seed-saving practices that are rooted in a balance with one's ecosystem. They taught us to blend time-tested traditions like drying with modern technologies such as solar energy to create delicious, healthy meals. They enabled us to understand the mutualisms we have with these tiny microorganisms and how partnering with them can create healthier and often more delicious foods. They taught us that making food is an embodied experience. And as such, we need to embrace it with all our senses. And now they leave us with a few parting words. I advise people who are starting on their own fermentation process is to keep a diary and to write about your process. This way, if you make mistakes, there are things that you can learn from. And if you do some research and you learn something new, you have somewhere to keep your thoughts. And if you experiment, you change things slightly between your iterations, you have somewhere to keep your observations. I'm doing what I want, what I think should be done. So I need to break that barrier and and have people understand that it's important to eat healthy and clean. It's important to be able to feed your children good, clean and fair food, the mottos of of slow food. Um, And to spend a little bit more now rather than spend a lot more when they grow up and become sick because they've eaten a lot of preservatives and a lot of junk food. Yeah, guys, go and grow some food. (laughs) I think that would be my last word. Grow some food. If we move into growing rather than consumption, we're moving in the right direction. As I'm trying to hand over my part of the story to the next generations, I really, really hope that they find their hearts joyous here because without the love for life on this planet. This knowledge that has been passed down will be lost and I want them to fall in love with it like I have and move it to the next step, whatever that next step is that they will show us and know that you're part of it. That's the love affair that that gets woke up is that you realize this place loves you and it's okay to love it back. We hope you've enjoyed traveling with us to different places and learned the different preservation techniques that exist and how even in arid regions, there can be regenerative food practices. Most of us, when we think of arid lands, we think of deserts. 
But soil desertification can be something much closer than expected. We talked to Elena Escano, a young agroecological pig farmer at the Finca Montefrio in Andalusia, Spain, to talk to us a little bit more about this. Elena, can you maybe explain to us how soil can turn into desert? What is soil erosion? And whether it's something that is not only happening in the deserts that we have in our mind, right? Yeah, indeed you're right. When we talk about a desert, we might think in the Sahara, for instance. However, we can find closer example of that. We can think about the countries in Europe. For instance, we have Italy or Portugal or even Spain. In Spain, one of the most characteristic ecosystem is the Dehesa, where I grew up. If we think about the past, rain was super soft and it was continuous. So when we were going to the school, Every single day we got there and our shoes were completely wet. However, currently the raining patterns have changed and then we can find like some days where we find a lot of rain. You can register like a 40 milliliters of water and some other weeks where we have not rain at all. Overgrazing also can be a potential problem with that. If we have too many livestock or if we produce like in an intensive way, we can find that patterns of deforestation has been promoted or maybe uh, an intensive livestock production system has been fostered or we can find like different systems which are harmful and they enhance the risk of desertification. Nowadays, never mind if you live in a city or if you live in the countryside, you have realized that the summer are getting hotter and hotter, and maybe longer, and the winters are somehow drier. This is a really nice thing to see if you want to go out but on the other hand, we are facing a huge change in the climate patterns. This might be something interesting if you're worried about desertification. Desertification is a process, it's dynamic, and the result of this process is the quality of the soil declining over time. This can be fostered by the soil erosion. The upper layer of the soil is uh, super important for the quality of the crops and for the quality of the ecosystem itself. By generating erosion in the soil, we are losing part of the nutrients and maybe we are limiting the productivity in the future. And are there ways we can prevent soil erosion? Agroecological principles could at least uh, slow down the speed of soil erosion. By implementing different agroecological practices, people are not just improving like the measures that are applied to the soil, but also can have an active role in the develop of the quality of their soils. For instance, you can apply organic matter coming from a sustainable uh, livestock production. And also you can have like a variety of different crops which complement each other and then you can use crop residues for your landscape. I think this is really important in terms of the future. And I hope that we all take a responsibility in reducing the risk of soil erosion.
all around Europe. Can you tell us how your farm is an example to ensure that we're creating a regenerative system? Yeah, so we are called Finca Montefrio. We are a small family farm located in the south of Spain, in Sierra Morena. And we combine different activities in order to preserve and live in and from the Dehesa. We produce 100% Iberian pig, which is a typical breed from the south of Spain and Portugal. And we have a really low ratio of pigs, so we keep around one pig per each two hectares in order to preserve the quality of the soil. They spend from September, October to March eating acorns and they help the soil to move around. So you need to move the pigs in order to preserve the quality of the soil. Apart from that, we have been implementing different techniques such as keyline in order to keep the water within the boundaries of the farm and preserve the nutrients running away. Another technique that we are implementing is like keeping part of the crop residues within the land, which foster like a lower difference of temperatures between the night and the day. And um, also we combine different uh, crops and we try to produce in a sustainable way and in a way that uh, foster not just our current job within the farm, but also the generations to come. Thank you so much, Sarah, for accompanying us in this journey throughout arid lands so far from each other, but at the same time with very similar struggles and also very interesting regenerative projects. We have learned that growing food and preserving it is possible in desert-like environments, and the guests of today are great examples for it. I remind you that this series of podcasts is organized on the occasion of Terra Madre 2020, the biggest event that the Slow Food Movement organizes every two years. It involves food, communities and activists from all over the world. This edition, due to the global pandemic, will have a big digital part and you can find the whole program on terramadresalonedelgusto.com. The link is on the podcast description. So please visit the website of Terra Madre and remember to support Sfin on Patreon. This is Valentina Gritti and you are listening to the Slow Food Youth Network podcast. Ciao!